0: on Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts.
1: Billie Eilish and Phineas O'Connell, they're with us today on Crew Call. I'm your host, Anthony DeLisandro. Billie's vocals. It was automatic art. You know, I had to, like, choose a more challenging route than just, like, da-da-da-da. You know what I'm saying? Like, it could have been, like, easier. And a lot of people have asked me, like, how did you choose to have it be so soft and like so simple and what else was it gonna like that's what the song wanted thanks for listening to this episode of the crew call podcast on deadline
0: there's plenty to celebrate in march and ex- craft month with the perfect pizza at home class from craftsy and anytime is right to listen to iheart radios iheart country radio discover more shows and movies for free looking for hair removal tools that not
1: only deliver smooth results but also make you feel totally in control enter conair girl bomb they're like your secret weapons for smooth sleek results made just for us from the ultimate Girl Bomb grip to the professional grade blades, say goodbye to settling for less. With Conair Girl Bomb, you get the precision and power that used to only be exclusive to men's tools. So take your hair removal routine to the next level with Conair Girl Bomb, available at Walgreens. Double
2: Elvis. The 27 Club is a production of iHeartRadio and double Elvis. Ron Pigpen McKernan died at the age of 27, and he lived a life that seemed to always be running a little late. I can give you 27 reasons why that statement is true. Five would be the number of years he absorbed the blues and R&B music that his disc jockey father spun, helping Pigpen develop a love for music that was decades before his time. Another 12 would be the age he was when he became a fixture in blues clubs in and around Palo Alto, where it wouldn't be too long before he was consuming more than music. Three more would be the number of years he'd study under a nine-fingered banjo wizard, honing his craft and becoming a fully realized musician. Another six would be the number of Grateful Dead members not named Pigpen who were tripping out during the bad vibrations of the band's set at Woodstock before Pigpen came to their rescue. And one would be the number of decades that would elapse between Pigpen's first appearance on stage and last appearance on Earth. All totaling 27. On this, our first episode of Season 5, A Disc Jockey Dad, A Nine-Fingered Wizard, Bad Vibrations at Woodstock, and The Grateful Dead's Ron Pigpen McKernan. I'm Jake Brennan, and this is the 27 Club. And it wouldn't work. It was the second night of the Woodstock Music and Arts Festival, and Augustus Osley Stanley III, aka Bear, was furious. The Grateful Dead's audio engineer, and the creator and purveyor of some of the finest LSD produced on the planet, stomped his way towards the stage. He moved past the mud pit that had formed up front, past the dirt stained blankets, peace sign banners, and American flags past the roaming dogs the sea of tie-dyed trippers, some of them completely nude, some underage, and almost all wide-eyed from the acid that was being distributed by hand. What a fucking scene, Bear thought. It was impressive, irreverent, and inspirational all at once. It was also becoming somewhat disturbing. The entire three-day concert had been mismanaged. Tickets had been monumentally oversold. And there were 10-mile traffic backups that forced the groups that were playing to be airlifted into the venue by helicopters. And the driving rain the night before was lingering, causing constant delays. The audience was soaked to the bone. Oh, in the 40-foot rotating circle of a stage that the Woodstock stagehands had been championing all day, the one that was built to make things move faster, the one they had assured Bear would work, wasn't. And now it was getting dark. The equipment had been carefully set up, prepared for the dead, and just moments after the stage began to rotate, it all came crashing down. Everything had to be reset. Bear had just about enough of the stage hands. Fuck did they know about the dead's gear? He told them. He told them that the dead didn't travel with the ordinary amount of equipment. He told them that as soon as the instruments and amplifiers had been put into place, the stage wouldn't stand a chance. And now here they were, a busted stage, a pissed off band, and yet another delay. Bear didn't care about peace and love. He just wanted the shit to work. The dead who had arrived the night before were also becoming more than a little disquieted by the scenes surrounding them. They had to be flown into Old Man Yasker's farm via helicopter, and the free-spirited commune they had seen the previous day was now a sea of mud-covered freaks. Save for the organist and singer Pigpen, the band had all immersed themselves on the drug of choice high quality lsd pig never touched the stuff it wasn't about to start now and the rest of the band were flying high compounding the intensity of the situation and they did all however insist that bear rewire everything the sound had to be perfect And they weren't about to blow another major gig not after their epic whiff at the monterey pop festival two summers earlier so bear owsley went to work. He determined that the PA provided was insufficient and made some choice alterations, including removing a 50-foot electrical grounding that was no longer actually grounded in any semblance of dry earth amongst the muddied mess that the 600 acres of the festival site had become. By the time the dead's friend, Ken Babs, the merry prankster who had arrived on Ken Kesey's further bus and who had most definitely been drinking the Kool-Aid, took the stage to introduce the dead, the show was once again well behind schedule. The crowd had been treated to the boogie rock of can't heed and the driving blues of Mountain, and they were in desperate need of a nice, mellow out. As the Grateful Dead tuned their guitars and checked over their equipment, Ken Babs tried to calm the crowd, commenting on how far out and beautiful it was that so many people could come together like this crowd knew what the scene was. They had created the scene. They didn't give a shit what Ken had to say about the scene. This wasn't Keezy's acid test. They just wanted the music to start again. They wanted to hear the Grateful Dead mid-peak. They were ready right now. The crowd, in their agitated state, grew louder as the dead prepared to play, now a full 45 minutes behind schedule. Things were already off to a bad start. Just then, a voice boomed over the P.A., A voice not from anyone on stage. A voice from somewhere dark, hidden. Would everybody please sit down? Let the people behind you have a chance to see the show. Just relax those muscles in your legs and sit down for a few minutes, please. Where was this intervention coming from? Bob Weir, the Grateful Dead's rhythm guitarist, stepped to his microphone and felt an electric shock surge straight to his core. The mic was ungrounded. Bob jumped back five feet and hollered in pain. The power went out on the entire stage, and the band was shook. This wasn't supposed to be a bad trip. This was supposed to be a celebration, conquest, a culmination of the last few years of free love and free music. This trip hadn't been all that long yet, but it was already plenty strange. When the power finally returned, Ken Babs tried once more to calm the delirious crowd, and this time, the dead were mercifully ready. It was about 10.30 on a Saturday night. One of the best fucking rock groups in the world, the Grateful Dead. The Dead fell right into the cosmic opening chords of their newest single, St. Stephen, and to the rain-soaked and acid-soaked crowd of 400,000 tie-dyed freaks in front of them, it sounded like heaven. This is what they had been waiting for. But the dead weren't quite as excited about the prospect of what was to come next. As they got into a groove, their gear buzzed and tingled. It was like Russian roulette with their instruments. Who'd be the next member of the group to get fried by an errant volt of electricity? The weather wasn't getting any better either, and the stage, which sat on a foundation of mud, now seemed to be sliding forward like an apathetic glacier ready to indiscriminately crush the people packed like sardines in front of it. The Dead cut St. Stephen short to calm the negative vibrations, instead deciding to run for the safety of one of their go-to cover tunes, Merle Haggard's Mama Tried. Blazing through the country classic with perfectly placed harmonies, the Dead seemed to have the show back on track. But as they prepared for their third song, their amps lost power one by one, and then the lights went out. That same mysterious voice floated out over the crowd via the PA system, speaking in indistinguishable sentences. What the hell was going on? Was everyone on this trip, or did the dead get some of that brown acid that was going around? Bear Owsley scrambled around the stage, resetting the amps. Eventually, the dead were back on track and powered forward with an inspired 14-minute version of Darkstar and didn't stop even when Phil Lesh's bass amp began to pick up muffled helicopter chatter. The dead were despondent. Another big show and another bust. There was only one man who could take the boys home now and what time they had left in their set. Ron Pigpen McKernan. Pig stepped forward with his cowboy hat pulled low, a cigarette in his hand, wearing the same leather vest he seemingly hadn't changed in four years. The real McCoy. Phil thumped out the opening bassline of Bobby Bland's Turn On Your Love Light. Jerry and Bob joined on guitar, then Tom Constantin on keyboards, and then Mickey Hart and Bill Kurtzman on drums. And just as Pigpen was about to step up to the mic, an audience member absolutely fried from too much sun and too many drugs got up on stage, commandeered the mic, and started rapping over the dead's groove. The dead didn't give a shit at this point. Screw it. Let the guy in the audience do his thing. He was vibing, and honestly, his rap was pretty far out. Nothing was in the band's control anymore, and they were ready to get off stage, get in the helicopter, and get the fuck out of Dodge. That is, until Pigpen's deep, soulful voice began to vibrate through the amplifiers on stage. Pigpen led the band through an intoxicating 47-minute jam, complete with solos from Jerry, duets with Bob, and too many improvised verses to count. Pig turned the bad vibes good, He enticed the crowd to get up and dance, and he pulled the rest of the band out of their haze. The near-hour jam ended the dead's uneven set with a triumphant, joyous, down and dirty roots rock flourish. Nobody in the dead but Pigpen could have turned the mood around that night. Pigpen was the lifeblood of the Grateful Dead, their substance, soul, and spiritual center. And even though he didn't dig the LSD, he dug the scene, he dug the music, and most of all, he dug the blues. The enigma that was Pigpen didn't just save the group in their moment of peril at Woodstock. He had also sparked the birth of the greatest jam band to ever exist, which gave birth to an entire community of fans who called themselves Deadheads and kicked off 50-plus years of concerts and classic albums. And it all started from humble beginnings somewhere out in Northern California. Phil Lesh was drawn to the voice. It was coming from the next room at the party in Palo Alto. Sounded like Lightning Hopkins mixed with T-Bone Walker. Smooth, sensitive, tortured, longing, the real deal, honest, authentic. Surely it was the voice of a seasoned blues musician, a true blue bluesman from somewhere far away from California. A voice that had traveled from way down south. Phil's eyes scanned the party. He followed the sound of the voice, and he was surprised to find out that everything he thought about the man behind the voice was not what he had expected. In 1961, Phil Lesh, the future bassist of The Grateful Dead, was volunteering as a recording engineer for KPFA out of San Francisco. Phil was constantly attending parties and immersing himself in the various music hotspots around the city, one of which happened to be 30 miles due south in Palo Alto. Several music venues had turned the small city into a vibrant scene. A scene that served as a response to the buttoned up, leave it to beaver vibe of the 1950s. A scene where a younger generation could discuss ideas that mattered to them. The kids weren't worried about the bomb or McCarthyism. Sure, they were political and read the news, but the people in this scene didn't have time to be fatalistic. They drowned out all that doom and gloom with positive sounds. Palo Alto was a cross-pollination of folk music, jazz, and R&B, and depending on where your tastes lay, good music was readily available at any time of day. On this evening, Phil and his girlfriend made their way to a party across the highway in East Palo Alto, a neighborhood lovingly referred to as the ghetto. The party was cramped but happening, with live music in the front room, and that's where the voice was coming from. It called out to Phil, so Phil followed. Phil rounded the corner into the front room and was shocked at what he saw. A white kid strumming an acoustic guitar and pouring the music out of his soul as if he were channeling Charlie Patton himself. Phil thought the kid's bushy black hair made him look a little like Claude Debussy, but unlike Debussy, this kid was clad in dirty jeans and a leather vest singing the blues. His skin was dry and blotchy. He looked as if he hadn't bathed in days. God damn it, that voice kid looked around 30 years old due to a long-standing relationship with alcohol but was actually hovering right around 16. the kid's name was ron mckernan but everyone called him pig pen phil had seen pig pen hanging around Palo alto with jerry garcia but he had no idea he could sing not like this how the hell did that voice get inside that body that body entered the world on September 8, 1945 in a small suburb outside of San Francisco called San Bruno to Esther Nelson and Phil McKernan. Phil was a boogie-woogie pianist and under the name DJ Cool Breeze was one of the first white disc jockeys for the local black radio station, KRE. Cool Breeze spent his block spinning R&B and blues music. His son, young Ron, was just six years old at the time and he didn't know it but when he laid by the speakers and the warm, smooth sounds of his father's record collection filled his ears, he was being steeped in a tradition of music that would end up coursing through his veins throughout all of his short life. Bessie Smith, John Lee Hooker, Big Joe Turner, Ma Rainey, Pigpen, by Proxy, absorbed the essence of the soulful and uplifting music of black America. As Jerry Garcia would later state, pigpen grew up with that music in his ear so it was real natural for him the blues the music that had been born in the 19th century in the cotton fields of the american south and evolved out of african-american spirituals mixed with european folk music and instrumentation blending influence from different regions races and continents and by the turn of the 20th century blues had matured taking a more fixed form in the unrelenting heat of the mississippi delta southern texas and the deep south with the first blues music being committed to sheet music in 1908. It exploded with the advent of the electric guitar in the early 1930s and it expanded its influence to every corner of the country, with hotbeds in both Chicago and on the West Coast kick-starting the careers of titans such as Howlin' Wolf, Muddy Waters, and Jimmy Reed. As blues music found a wider audience, it found a whiter audience, and the beats dug it. Jack Kerouac even wrote some of his own as he hopped rail cars and trolleys on the busy streets of San Francisco. San Francisco was the same place where Cool Breeze discovered it, and the same place he passed it on to his son, Pigpen. From 1951 to 1956, Cool Breeze spun those records, schooling Pigpen on the history of the genre and creating a passion and love for the good vibrations, the history, and the culture. Pig sang along to the records his dad played, and the feeling, the mood, the vibe embedded itself squarely in the center of his eternal being. It was the only thing that seemed to matter to him. Pigpen was a fixture in the blues clubs by 12 years old and was drinking by 13. It was part of the scene. If it's what the great blues men did, well, shit, Pigpen would do it too. But music, that was the main thing. He saw the cats on stage every night, hearts bled dry, singing that music that would overthrow your soul with joy, only to spin around and punch you in the gut. Listening to the blues was a religious experience, and Pigpen was all about kneeling at that altar. He deeply entrenched himself in the Palo Alto scene, attending parties, learning guitar and blues harp from anyone who would take the time to teach him. And that's where he met Jerry Garcia. Jerry Garcia had been knocking around town for a while now, It was the only guy who really took any interest in playing the blues on guitar, and Pig was enthralled. Pig attended parties with Jerry and watched closely as Jerry effortlessly picked out the blues. He studied the way Jerry's hands glided across the neck of the guitar, the patterns, the precision. Wait, was that guy missing a finger on his picking hand? Later, when Pig was alone, he'd pull out his guitar and a bottle of Thunderbird wine and spend hours trying to recreate the sounds he'd heard earlier that night. But Pigpen didn't have the confidence it took to get up on stage like Jerry Garcia did. And Pigpen didn't yet have the skills with an instrument to feel at home there either. He sure had heart. So Jerry Garcia took Pigpen under his wing, taught him how to pick up the blues on guitar, how music worked. Months turned into years as Pigpen learned from Jerry, honing his craft until he was proficient enough to bang out Lightning Hopkins and Robert Johnson tunes with ease. And by the time he was ready to take the stage and sing and play for an audience, Pigpen blew people's minds. He already had the attitude and the voice, but now he had some real instrumental chops, too. Nobody in the Palo Alto scene really played or sang the blues. And as Phil Lesch experienced in the front room of that party that night in 1961, Pigpen's bluesy growl shook the scene like a tug of Thunderbirds straight out of the bottle. Pig already had the knowledge and the natural talent, but now he had the confidence to really deliver. Maybe one day, he thought, he could have his own record that could go up on the shelf next to those of his heroes. He was on an irreversible course. And it was all thanks to that beatnik guitar player with shaggy hair. The one with the cool, calm demeanor. The one with not only the musical ability, but intellectual prowess to match. The one who could play anything on the banjo or guitar even if he was missing the middle finger of his right hand. It was all thanks to Jerry Garcia.
1: We'll be right back after this word, word, word. Witness the dawning of a new era in automotive luxury with a reveal unlike any other as Infinity presents a new chapter in luxury The following ad is sponsored by Pets Best Insurance Services. Pets come into our lives in many ways shelters breeders or unexpected encounters but no matter how you found your pet they become our perfect match unfortunately finding the right pet insurance plan can be hard that's where pets best comes in with a little information about you and your pet pets best will recommend a plan that meets your needs and budget visit petsbest.com to learn more today your perfect pet deserves the perfect coverage petsbest.com new year's eve
2: 1963 Bob Weir and his two friends, Bob Matthews and Rich McCauley, were roaming the streets of Palo Alto. They'd struck out at every bar they tried to get into and no one would let them in, and the night was a total bust. It wasn't surprising given that the three friends were just 16 and definitely looked their age, but now they were resigned to the fruitless venture of window shopping at closed stores. Bob was on holiday break from boarding school in Colorado and was just looking for a good time, but this night was turning into a colossal bummer. They couldn't escape the muffled roar of New Year's Eve festivities from the establishments they had been turned away from. They were about to pack it in and head home when they heard another sound in the air. The sweet sound of a banjo floated out of what seemed to be the only open shop in the entire town, Dana Morgan's music store just so happened Bob and his friends were irregulars. They poked their heads inside and saw a goatee dude with jet black hair wielding a banjo. He hammered away on the instrument prodigiously like some sort of mystic. Rich McCauley was a banjo student of the dude. And Jerry Garcia had no idea it was New Year's Eve. He was fixated on the bluegrass he was playing, waiting for a pair of students who would never arrive for their lesson and oblivious to all else in the world including the celebrations taking place all around him. Bob and his friends, having nothing better to do, suggested an impromptu jam session. Come on, man, let's play some. Jerry was hesitant. What if a student showed up? It's New Year's Eve, Jerry, Bob explained. No one's coming tonight except for us. Jerry acquiesced. He grabbed some extra guitars and the four began kicking out tunes, traditional folk from that old weird America. The kind of stuff both jerry and bob vibed on a few songs led to a dozen and before they knew it they had picked their way right out of 1963 and into 1964. it was impossible to deny the musical fusion jerry and bob created together rich suggested that with the folk craze going on at the moment the two should start a jug band bob and jerry locked eyes what would become the original model for the dead started out as mother mccree's uptown jug champions Jerry recruited his friends Tom Stone and Dave Parker to play banjo and washboard respectively and knew exactly who the final piece of the puzzle would be. When Bob showed up for the first meeting with the other band members, he was unnerved by only one of them. The guy was heavy built with a leather shirt and dark eyes. His unkempt hair spilled out in every direction. His jet black mustache laid over a pockmarked face. He didn't look like the kind of guy Bob usually associated with, this guy. Looked fierce, dangerous. Bob, meet Pigpen. Pigpen, now 18, had been steadily improving his skills under Jerry Garcia's tutelage for a few years, and as a result, had secured steady work gigging in the area. Adding proficiency on guitar and keys to his harmonica and vocal chops, he landed spots in a couple of country blues bands, played gigs with Jerry, gigs solo, and even fronted an electric blues band called the Zodiacs. Thanks to Jerry, the kid who washed out of high school and washed up on the Palo Alto scene was no longer an amateur. Bob would come to find out that Pigpen's biker garb bluesman's exterior didn't match his personality. He'd learned the pig was sweet, sensitive, and his only real interests were in the music that he was making. And hooch. Three weeks later, Mother McCree's Uptown Jug champion started playing shows all over the San Francisco Peninsula. They took gigs wherever they could and always kept the music loose and the atmosphere lively and the mood light and fun. Jerry, who could now break away from the dogmatic rigidness of bluegrass playing, seemed to be thriving in a free-flowing state, joyously filling the space with the serene sounds of his guitar. Bob, not yet up to par on guitar, chugged along on bass while Tom spilled out intricate banjo patterns and Dave added color with his washboard. And then there was Pigpen, the other members of the band agreed. Pig was simply the best singer amongst them. Before the band would take the stage, Pig Pen would get a little buzz on, and then he let loose with a rip roaring down home, get down growling on the mic with his gravelly yet endearing voice. And the group made every venue they played feel like a honky tonk. Eventually, Dave and Tom cycled out, and different musicians took their place. And this kept Mother McCree's a fresh act that would never be the same live experience twice. This unique group dynamic mixed with their combination of blues standards and old-timey folk made them a favorite on the local circuit. However, after a few months of playing the standards, the tune seemed, even by the group's own admission, a little bit dated. This was especially true with what was going on across the pond in England some 5,000 miles away, where four mop tops from Liverpool were turning the world of popular music on its head. Pigpen had an idea. Let's get some drums, man. And the Beatles were changing pop music from black and white to technicolor, and the conservatism of the early 60s was morphing into something entirely different. Pig thought Mother McCree's uptown jug band champion should hop aboard the train before it left the station. And what Pig Pen didn't know is that this new desire to plug in to crank out some electric blues would eventually put his group at the center of a burgeoning counterculture. It would change their lives forever. was filled with smoke and the sound of clinking bottles. It smelled like whiskey and stale beer. A group of men sat at a table dealing cards, muttering to each other, serious players. Not the kind of guys you'd mess around with, not if you were smart. But when the back door opened, the table fell silent. Two bluesmen entered, guitar cases in hand. They tipped their hats to the gamblers as they walked past, moving through another door and into the main room of the club. The gamblers watched them closely. One of the gamblers leaned in, whispering the rumors he was sure were true about the man in the front. The one who was unmatched on the acoustic guitar, the one who made the blues sound like a symphony, like it was from another world. The one, it was said, who had sold his soul to the devil for the ability to do so. The man was Robert Johnson. In August of 1938, He was working a circuit of Mississippi juke joints, playing the blues, making a paycheck, and at each stop, shacking up with whichever woman he wooed, of which there was no shortage. However, by all accounts, Robert was a nice guy. He didn't have the inherent rowdiness that came along with most musicians of the day. He simply showed up, played his cosmic blues music, and moved it on down the road of peace. But in his travels, Robert had picked up a bad whiskey habit and while it didn't inhibit his seemingly possessed finger picking, it severely altered his common sense, especially when it came to choosing which women to woo. On this night, in Greenwood County, Robert had fixed his sight on a darling of the Delta, a woman with long flowing hair that danced alongside his intoxicating 12 Bar Blues. He couldn't take his eyes off of her the entire set, and she made no indication that she wasn't interested. The problem, of course, was that she was a married woman. And she wasn't married to just anyone. She was married to one of the men who had been sitting at the gambling table in the back room, the club's owner. He was the man who had hired Robert Johnson, who was paying him and providing free drinks. And now he was making moves on his wife. Fat fucking chance. The owner left the gambling table and was now fixed firmly behind the bar, watching his wife make eyes at the bluesman on stage. He had his suspicions. Heard it was nothing new that Robert had moved on his woman the last time through town, but now it was all but confirmed. The man disappeared into the back room and returned with an unmarked bottle of white powder. He poured a glass of whiskey and stirred in a spoonful of the stuff. But when his wife arrived at the bar to quench the thirst, she worked up on the dance floor. Her husband slid the tincture to her and motioned to the stage. None the wiser, the woman carried the glass straight to Robert Johnson. As he finished a tune, she stepped up onto the stage, handed him the glass, and brushed his inner thigh as she stepped away with a smile. Robert flashed a devilish grin. He had no idea what he was actually in for that night. As Robert Johnson worked through the rest of the set and the rest of the whiskey, he began to feel sick. Then there was a strange pain deep in his stomach, and that wasn't just whiskey in the glass. He cut the set short and went back to the place he was staying but this would be one hangover he wouldn't sleep off. The toxins found their way to a recently diagnosed ulcer and quickly ate at Robert's insides. Within three days, Robert Johnson was dead on the floor of a shack in Greenwood, Mississippi. Like Pigpen, the hard edge of Robert Johnson's lifestyle was divorced from his personality. Also like Pigpen, Robert was a talent that burned too bright for the world. They were bluesmen with a soft side, lighthearted, warm, amicable, and joyous. Both took their music very seriously, spending hours, months, even years, perfecting their craft. And despite the rumors of a deal to Crossroads, there was no demonic intervention. Robert Johnson and Pigpen made honest, genuine music by their commitment to their craft. However, the good times often came with a lifestyle and good intentions, stirred and shaken with those good times don't always meet with good outcomes. As Robert groaned his way through his last hours on earth in that Mississippi shack, writhing in pain, it was clear that the good times were coming to an end all too soon. He was buried the same day he died. Robert Johnson was not a mythical being. He was a real person. His time on Earth ran out August 16, 1938. He was 27 years old. 31 years later, Robert Hunter would pen the lyrics to The Grateful Dead's Easy Wind, influenced by Robert Johnson's Immaculate Blues. The track would appear on The Grateful Dead's 1970 album, Working Man's Dead sung by the only member of the group who could authentically deliver the gravelly vocals and punchy harmonica necessary to pay homage to the tradition of the music. Pigpen. The result was four minutes and 59 seconds of pure, unadulterated blues. Like Robert Johnson, Pigpen felt most at home playing the blues, balancing the joy and the pain of music and life. Also like Robert Johnson, that lifestyle quickly snuck up on Pigpen. pen three years after the release of the record working man's dead ron pigpen mckernan would also be dead at 27 i'm jake brennan and this is the 27 club 27 Club is hosted and produced by me, Jake Brennan, for Double Elvis in partnership with iHeartRadio. Zeth Lundy is the lead writer and co-producer. This episode was mixed by Joel Edinburgh. Additional music and score elements by Ryan Spraker and Henry Lunetta. This episode was written by Ted Omo. Story and copy-ending by Pat Healy. Sources for this episode are available at doubleelvis.com on the 27 Club series page. Talk to me on social at DisgracelandPod and hang out with me live on my Twitch channel, Disgraceland Talks. For more news on your favorite podcast, follow at Double Elvis on Instagram. rock What's
0: up for your ears? Parents, if you've ever experienced bedtime battles with the kids, I'm going to let you into a little secret. The Koala Moon Podcast has revolutionized over 20 million bedtimes